Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Amen. Guys, it's crazy to think uh, today, uh, well, it was actually a few days ago, marks me being the senior pastor here for uh, seven years, going into... Going, I, I, was, I was a little concerned about uh, how that math works out because I kept saying uh, eight years, but it's the start of my, eight year, my eighth year. So it's kind of like your first birthday, you really have already lived a whole year. You, don't, you start at zero. Does that make sense? Uh, and so evidently, I, I might have been lying to people when I told people I was, yeah, I've been here as the senior pastor for eight years. I've been here a little longer than that. Uh, so going on 12 years total, um, which seems crazy because I still feel like the new guy in Pagosa a lot of the time. And so for you long-standing locals here, uh, I know that there's some sort of pride about being here and growing up here, but I, when, when do I become a local? That's what I want to know. When do I get a pass? Because <laughs> I know that there are people here that have recent, that are only like two or three years in, and I can't imagine how you guys feel right now. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I'm sharing that because in my tenure as a pastor here, it, it seems crazy to think about all the different messages that I've preached. You know, I start going back through my records on my computer, and I'm really bad about sermon names that we've kind of joked about in the past. So a lot of my sermons are like untitled 72, untitled 84. And I'm starting to calculate them and I'm realizing maybe I don't save all of my sermons that I preach, but there's no way I have eight years worth of sermons uh, on my computer. And uh, I'm not sure where they all go, where they disappear to, but as I was just thinking back on some of my favorite messages that I've preached here in this congregation, A lot of them uh, centered around something that we did uh, regarding a character study, either around the lives of a a major character in Scripture. So I remember one of the very first sermon series that I preached as a senior pastor was on the prophet Elijah. And we walked through the life of Elijah. And then after we walked through Elijah's life through the scriptures and kind of the lessons that we could glean just from his life and his ministry, uh, we went into Elijah's story and looked at his, his successor. And I, I preached a series on Daniel, on living with conviction in a culture of compromise. I had a fancy tagline. Yeah, if anybody remembers when I really was really good with sermon title names and had taglines and stuff, um, evidently I'm just not that creative anymore, but we talked about David, we talked about Peter. Peter was one of my favorites that we looked at because I, I connect with Peter on a spiritual level. I don't know about you guys, but Peter's the guy that just tells Jesus that he's wrong, is kind of hard-headed, a little stubborn, cutting off people's ears. I imagine him to be pretty competitive, you know? That's why when John is writing his gospel, he, he makes it known that I beat Peter to the tomb, right? <laughs> no, never mind. Uh, I bet you that got on Peter's nerves. Anyway, all of that... Uh, saying, if I'm being honest, I think I I loved those series because there was something accessible about each one of them. There was something accessible about human stories that was, you know, man, these these are real people. I can relate to them. And I think we can look at people in the Bible and feel less than adequate in comparison sometimes. Anybody do that? Like I'm looking at Peter. I was like, what the heck? Peter walked on water with Jesus. How am I supposed to compare to that? Elijah's a stinking prophet. Like, how am I supposed to compare with that? David is a king, right? Daniel is this, like, wise man that grew up uh, in, in just wisdom. And even in Babylonian captivity, he was just super smart. And I'm like, man, I just don't think I can compete with people like these. What could I possibly have in common with these people? And I think if we're to look at the scriptures with an open heart and an open mind, uh, there's actually quite a bit that we relate to them on. And it's helpful for me when Scripture really reminds me that these guys are just people. 
Uh, when I say just people, I don't want to like diminish the role of the Lord in their lives, but they're, they're human beings. That's why uh, James in James 5.17 reminds us about this great man, Elijah, right? That's calling down fire from heaven, that's praying and the rain stops. It says in, in James 5.17 that Elijah was as human as we are. And yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. It talks about the righteous, uh, the prayers of a righteous man. The fervent prayers of a righteous man are effective, right? Uh, it goes on there. But the Bible is full of stories of real people, just like you and me, that had encounter with a supernatural God. And that's where things get awesome. That's where things get crazy. That's where things become memorable, not just because these people existed, not just because they were cool historical fig- uh, figures, we glean from them because they were ordinary people, believe it or not, just like us from different walks of life. Yes, some were born into royalty, some were kings, some were peasants, some were just, we don't even know their history, but they all were impacted by this person uh, of the Lord. And we see things uh, radically change. And so it's full of people with real past, real struggles connected by a God who is mighty to save. And so with that in mind, I want to look at one person in particular. I'm, I'm excited for this because I was thinking back about these people that we've looked at through scripture and we could, there's a whole kind of plethora of characters that we could kind of look at and begin to do teaching on. But one uh, was uh, particularly highlighted to me when I was in prayer these, these, these last two weeks. And uh, the apostle Paul Really, uh, I just feel like the Lord was telling me to preach a, a message on the Apostle Paul. And I was thinking, what does that mean? What does that look like? Because uh, if you guys don't know this, Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament. And so if I were going to uh, preach like exhaustively through the life of Paul and his messages and the things that he said, uh, we would be here for a very long time. <laughs> I could, uh, again, have a sermon series that is like, you know, 122 weeks long or something like that as we work through the teachings of Paul. But uh, just to set you up for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be examining the life and the ministry of Paul the Apostle. And so uh, he would say this in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. He says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And I think about these words often. I don't know if you've ever thought about them, but their implications are huge. You know, from a carnal viewpoint, I can kind of mistake Paul here for being a little egotistical, like who does he think he is? And I I, I might feign some humility here and counter it with, well, don't look at me. Don't look to me. Look to Jesus, right? I don't really want followers of Nate. I want to make followers of Jesus. And I, I might say something like that, and that maybe, maybe the heart behind that can be, be somewhat redeemed. But the reality here is the scriptures say that Paul, uh, Paul had this uh, assertiveness, this certainty behind his words where he says, follow me as I follow Christ. And that's a good thing. Like if you were to do the things that I'm doing, you would wind up in a good place. And as a pastor, uh, those words weigh heavy on me. I, I, I think about, man, if my kids were to do exactly as I'm doing, to follow me in the same manner that I'm, I'm moving and living, would they wind up in a good place? I think about that often with you as a congregation. If you were to live your lives exactly the same way that I'm living mine, would you wind up at Jesus's feet? Am I following Jesus closely enough that if somebody were to imitate me, would they be good with the Lord? And, and that's, that's the certainty with which Paul is making this declaration. He's not, it's not from this braggadocious, prideful place like, I am holier than thou. But I do believe that he understands that the church, that people, followers of Jesus, need sound examples of what it looks like to actually say yes to the Lord. Has anybody ever had this happen with your kids? If you had kids in this place, um, you know, where you're telling them to do something that you yourself don't do, right? It's the do as I say, not as I do kind of line of thinking. I know with my, uh, my, uh, my five-year-old is awesome. 
He'll eat anything that you put in front of him. He's just like a rock star. He's like a human garbage disposal. He's eating like wasabi and all of his vegetables and just awesome, right? And uh, my youngest, Simeon, is not so much uh, that big of a fan of all the food that we give him. I think he lives exclusively on the diet of like chicken nuggets and quesadillas. <laughs> the other day, uh, he stopped eating meat like all together. All he wants is bread and carbs. I'm making like bacon for him and he's throwing his bacon on the ground. I'm like, son, in this house, we will eat bacon. Okay, my man over here with the bacon shirt, he, him and I, we connect on a spiritual level here. And I'm thinking, yeah, what the heck? Like, this kid doesn't want to eat bacon, and uh, he doesn't like to eat his vegetables, but uh, uh, guess what? Uh, since I've become a father, and in recent years, and thanks to my wonderful wife, uh, I have learned that I also have to eat my vegetables if I'm going to tell my kids they're going to eat their vegetables. So guess whose new favorite vegetable is broccoli? It is mine. <laughs> and I've learned to, they're not bad. They're not going to kill you. They're actually pretty good. I think it's designed in the reverse effect that they're supposed to help you live better and longer and happier and all that fun stuff. And I've learned if I eat my vegetables, I get dessert. Woo. But I... <coughs> I think about this. If your family were to imitate you in your walk with the Lord, would it be a good thing? Is the way that you're following Jesus right now worthy of replication? And I'm not saying this in the, in the sense that you're perfect and you're awesome and yeah, everybody would be better off if they just loved Jesus as much as I do. But I do sense from the words of Paul and looking at his teaching that there is this weight, there's this emphasis that we are examples. That, that who we are and what we do, that there are people watching. And they are going to imitate us. So make sure that we're imitating Christ. I remember, I remember being a young man, 16, 17 years old, recently giving my life to the Lord, hanging out with my youth pastor, a uh, different youth pastor than Pastor Josh, uh, so you don't get this, uh, this confused. Uh, he, he had moved on to be a, a senior pastor, but I, I was with this, this pastor, and uh, you know he was telling me all about these movies that he was watching. And in my mind, uh, well, if the youth pastor is watching this stuff, then it's got to be okay. You know, that, that was just the, the naivety of a young man new to following Jesus, thinking, oh, this guy's a Christian, and I look up to him. His relationship with God is obviously good. So, man, if he listens to this or he watches this, then it's got to be permissible. It's got to be okay. I remember going to watch this movie that was rated R and was really dumb and was just horrible. And it, like, messed me up for weeks. I had this great conviction and this unsettledness about it. And I realized uh, there as a young man that, like there's a weight placed upon us that there are people that are watching us and watching the decisions and the actions that we make. And I believe that that's where Paul's instructions to watch and guard our life and our doctrine closely, um, that we might save ourselves and our hearers is important because there are people that are listening to you. There are people that are watching you. You have professed Jesus there is a world that is watching and I'm asking you, are you living a life worth imitating? Because this is what Paul says. And so with that in mind, we're going to look at Paul's life. We're going to look at where he started, eventually winding up where he finished. And I'm excited just for the launching point of uh, coming to the end of Paul's life and seeing his legacy and the whole door that opens up. Because uh, is anybody here Jewish? Anybody? Oh, Shannon, you're Jewish? I'm learning all kinds of new stuff. Okay, he's just messing with me. Uh, the overwhelming majority of us are not Jewish. Bacon guy is not Jewish. Okay, got it. Man, I feel bad. He's from Pueblo, so I feel like we can connect, um, and I'm already ragging on him. He's like, man, I am never visiting this church again. I just really like his shirt, okay? Um, but, but the reality is uh, Paul was considered the apostle to the Gentiles, he was appointed even in his commission from the Lord Jesus himself to carry the message, the good news of Jesus, which was the Messiah, which was initially like uh, revolving around the Jewish people 
to the Gentile and Greek world of which uh, almost everybody in this room, I didn't actually see anybody raise their hand, uh, would be considered not Jewish. Somebody raised their hand. I'm sorry, I didn't see it. Lisa, you're Jewish? Whoa, that's cool. I have so many questions now um, that I'm not going to disrupt the flow of the service for. (laughs) But maybe after. But this is the same Paul that wrote the majority of our New Testament. If you want to get technical, you could probably say Bible uh, in the sense that uh, he has more books attributed to him as the author through inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But before he was known as Paul the Apostle, uh, he was known as simply as Saul of Tarsus. You guys remember in Acts chapter 9, if, if you don't remember this, this is okay, but where, uh, where Paul, um, who was initially known as Saul in the scriptures, um, encounters the risen Lord Jesus Christ, his name gets changed from Saul to Paul. You guys remember that story? Okay, if you guys just said yes to that, you're probably remembering incorrectly, and that was a dirty little trick, because nowhere in Scripture does it actually say that his name was changed. I don't know if you knew this, but this was like a mind drop that uh, we had a couple years ago when we were talking about Scriptures and really looking to see what the Scriptures actually say. I remember even being a young man, like growing up through youth group and stuff, and you know, it was frequently taught that God encountered uh, Saul, on the way to Damascus, revealed himself, uh, revealed himself to Paul and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now your name is Paul and you're going to go preach the message to the Gentiles. And uh, that's not actually what happens. If you guys didn't know that, I would encourage you guys to read uh, Acts chapter 9 because it doesn't actually give the, the, uh, the declaration that God changes his name from Saul to Paul. I have people over here like studying their Bibles like, what? It doesn't say that? (laughs) It doesn't, I promise. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because the reality is is Saul is a Hebrew name and Paul is a Greek name. And most of our New Testament is actually written in Greek, if you didn't know that. And because Paul's ministry was primarily to the Gentiles and to the Greeks, it made more sense for him to go by, at least in writing uh, and in speech, by his uh, Greek name, Paul. And so the same thing would be the same as, uh, uh, you know, uh, there is a Hebrew name, Jacob. The Greek variant of that is James. Um, the Greek, uh, the Greek uh, variant of Judah, which is Hebrew, is actually Judas. And so the same is kind of translates to Paul's kind of mentality here. Uh, his Hebrew name was Saul. His Greek name was Paul. And based on the context of his ministry, we see him going by Paul more often than Saul throughout the rest of the scripture. So just an interesting thing there. So if you hear me talking and I interchange Saul and Paul, um, we're talking about the same person here. We're talking Saul of, Tar- Saul of Tarsus is Paul the apostle. And God has changed people's names in scripture. We see that in the Old Testament. I'm not saying that he can't. But we don't have any explicit information in the scriptures from the text that say like Jesus changed Paul's name from Saul to Paul. It's just simply a matter of his context and probably due to the fact that he was ministering to Greeks and Gentiles. So he probably used the Greek variant of his name more often than he used the Hebrew variant of his name. Everybody good there? Cool, that was kind of a dirty little trick to play on you guys. You're like, yeah, I remember that story Uh, because I gave part of it. He does encounter the Lord. Uh, on the road to Damascus, he does get converted. And we're going to talk about that uh, next week, not this week in particular. We'll hint at it and uh, kind of stab around it. But yeah, it's pretty exciting. So before we get to Paul the Apostle, we're going to look at his life pre-conversion as a religious zealot who persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. In Acts 26, this is where we're going to kind of center our teaching around Paul for the next couple of weeks. Uh, Paul gives his testimony uh, before King Agrippa uh, where he's on trial. He's been arrested in Jerusalem. Uh, They're wanting to try him. And uh, in Acts 25, we understand that they're actually plotting to kill Paul, where Paul pulls out this kind of card out of his back pocket. He's like, hold up. I'm a Roman citizen. I demand to see Caesar. 
uh, and based on the, the cultural laws of those times, uh, Paul wasn't going to, uh, because he was a Roman citizen, it enabled him to be tried in Rome, which eventually he does make his case all the way up before Caesar. Um, but uh, we don't, the book of Acts ends before we get there. Um, all interesting stuff. But for the sake of where we are in our understanding of Paul's life, we're going to pick up in Acts 26 where he gives his own testimony before this king, King Agrippa, who is uh, in Caesarea Philippi. He's basically um, little Caesar, I think is a, a great way. Oh, yeah, pizza guy. Uh, <laughs> uh, just just for, for your mindset here. Um, but before we jump into his response and what Paul actually says here, I want to remind you of who Paul's talking to, who King Agrippa is. And so uh, his great-grandfather, King Agrippa's great-grandfather, was actually Herod, who tried to kill baby Jesus when he was, uh, when he was a baby. I was going to say baby Jesus when he was a baby. Uh, if you remember that story at the very beginning of your New Testament, uh, his grandfather is the one that had John the Baptist beheaded. And his father martyred the first apostle, being James. And so this is who Paul is standing before, about to give his testimony to this king about who he was, his life before Christ, how Christ changed that, and why he's kind of pleading to bring his case before Caesar. And he says this, uh, he says that he's happy to do this. He's considering himself fortunate to plead his case before this king whose family lineage has not been very kind to Christians. Uh, just, I, I want to frame that and put it into perspective here. So beginning in Acts 26, verse 1, it says, Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate, uh, the New King James says, happy to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know that I have lived, all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, they have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise of our 12 tribes. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? This is where I want you to focus in. He says, I, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. And so I want to highlight three things here about the Apostle Paul that we learn from his testimony here, his kind of self-admittance, uh, when, when he's sharing his story here. So, uh, really quick, this is a case where Paul is sharing his personal testimony before a king, and he doesn't leave out the nitty-gritty details. He's very open and honest about what God has saved him from, his past life. And I want you to understand today that there doesn't have to be shame associated with who you used to be. But God can use it as potential. He can use it as ammunition, if you will, to disarm the working of the enemy. And I want you to, I want you to understand that. If he can use a story like Paul where he is literally hunting down Christians, he didn't kind of gloss over that. He shared it openly and freely in showing and demonstrating how God can change a person. And so the first thing I want to highlight here is that Paul was a faithful Jew. He's probably the most Jewish Jew that you can find, uh, right? Before Christ, Paul's identity was primarily wrapped up in religion, in his Jewishness, if you will. He came from a God-fearing family, 
We learn about this in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He was a Pharisee like his father. We learn about that in Acts chapter 23. He was educated by a respected rabbi named Gamaliel. Uh, Gamaliel, uh, that's in Acts chapter 22. His Jewish credentials included his heritage, his discipline, and his zeal. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. This is what it says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. If someone else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. What a weird thing to brag about. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Those are what Paul says about his time as a Jewish man. Uh, he goes on to eventually consider them all rubbish in that, late, in that same uh, chapter there in Philippians chapter 3 and saying that it's uh, not worth anything there. But I want you to understand this as we begin to look at Paul. He was a man of faith. He was a Jew of Jews. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. The second thing I think is important to note uh, that we get in the context of this was that he was a Roman citizen. Saul of Tarsus was from Tarsus, believe it or not. Um, and that was a, profit, uh, a prosperous city in the province of Cilicia. Uh, uh, Cilicia? I, I'm butchering my uh, names of places and those things. But that granted him Roman citizenship. His family was likely well off. They probably earned, owned land. And being a landowner under a Roman province automatically granted you Roman citizenship. It was a coveted thing. Uh, in order to gain Roman citizenship, uh, it, was not a, it was not an easy thing to do. Uh, you could serve in the military for like 25 years and then you could gain access to be a Roman citizen. But with, its, uh, with this citizenship, there came some perks, if you will, one of which is that uh, he could appeal to Caesar to have his case heard uh, in the highest court of Rome as a Roman citizen, and they would have to grant him a fair trial, which is what is happening here. This is why he's presenting his case to King Agrippa to hopefully make his way towards Rome. And uh, just a little bit of backdrop there. Uh, Paul was a faithful uh, Jew. He was a Roman citizen. And then you've already picked up on this, and this is probably not new information for you, but I want to highlight this. He was actively persecuting the early church. He was actively persecuting Christians at the, at the very formation of this uh, movement of Christianity. And so with that, I want to look at Acts chapter 7. We're going to begin in, at the beginning of Acts 7 and work our way through the beginning of Acts 8. And so beginning in Acts 7, verse 54, we're coming at the end of Stephen, who has given this uh, amazing uh, declaration of the gospel. He's worked through the prophets, and uh, he is uh, really, I mean, he's on, <coughs> excuse me, uh, he's preaching, and he's going. And uh, at the end of his message, at the end of his testimony about Jesus, it says this, when the members of the Sanhedrin, which would have been the Jewish court, if you will, that determined the laws for all of Judaism, uh, heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. These are, these are the Jews. These are faithful followers to Judaism. This is where Saul would have, uh, would have been. We'll see that here in just a second. They drag him out, and they begin to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees. He cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, meaning he died. Uh, but it goes on in verse 1 of the next chapter. It says, and Saul approved of their killing him. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. 
But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. You see, Saul, Paul, he was a zealot Pharisee from a God-fearing Pharisee household who had deep knowledge and reverence of the scriptures. It said that he would have had to memorize the entirety of the Old Testament, like, like to be able to vocalize it uh, if you were going to study under Gamaliel. He was a Roman citizen who is actively hunting down Christians. These are all important details as we begin to unfold Paul's story. He goes on in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12 to say, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. With the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among who, whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So the question is, as we're studying Paul, how does this drastic change translate into our life here today? Right? Where is the application for us as we're looking at this, this man named Saul? Saul of Tarsus, who is actively hunting Christians, we understand that he does eventually convert. He does eventually meet Jesus, and his life is changed. But how does that really, where, what do we glean from his story thus far right now? I mean, how many of you are actively hunting down Christians? Okay, I'm glad nobody's hands went up. <laughs> I hope you're not hunting down anybody, actually, if I'm being honest. Uh, not just Christians. Um, there, I realize that we can look at this. It's like, well, obviously, Saul, misguided, but still a pretty bad dude, right? Uh, very much opposed the way of Jesus. Okay, we don't want to be like Saul in this case. <clears throat> and if I had one main point to highlight here, this is where we're going to eventually unwrap from this beginning part of Paul's journey this beginning part of Saul's kind of journey to becoming an apostle, to being used by God in a mighty way, is that God can use anyone he chooses. I want you to understand this. Uh, regardless of their background, in fact, I think he might even use you distinctively in spite of your background for his glory. Of what you've gone through, I don't want you to make the assumption that it precludes you from being used by God in a mighty way. In fact, I think oftentimes it can be the exact opposite. Because of what you've gone through, God might specifically choose and use you to minister because of that. And so for anyone here this morning that feels disqualified from the mistakes of your past or the things that you've walked through or the wrong that you've done, I'm hoping nobody here has gone on like a murderous rampage where you're burning down churches and killing people. But I want you to look at Paul as an example. He was the most opposed to Christianity. The, the, very, the very clear example that we had of, uh, of someone that was the most opposed to the advancement of the church who radically encountered the Lord and changed everything about his life. And not only did he go from burning churches down, but to planting them. Does that make sense? Do you guys hear my heart here? If there was one major thing that I want you to understand here is that God can and wants to use anybody that is willing. And I'm going to break this down. I'm going to make some more, um, more claims there about this. It says that, I, I wrote this down, that God took the most Jewish Jew to bring the message of the gospel to the Gentiles, which I think is awesome. 
Right? This is the guy that was like strictly following Jewish custom and law and really prided himself in being super Jewish, which meant that he had a super holier-than-thou mentality probably and looked at the Gentiles as those that didn't have any access to God. And here we see one encounter with Jesus completely changing that trajectory. Do not let your history preclude you from what God wants to accomplish in your life and through your life. But as I was reading 1 Timothy here, I'm going to give you a, a, just a couple quick things that I really felt were highlighted to me in my reading of this passage. The first thing that stuck out to me was in uh, verse 12 there, where it says that he considered him faithful, that Jesus considered Paul faithful and put him into service or put him into ministry, depending on what translation that you're using. It wasn't based on his background. I want you to understand this. Uh, you know, he, he had a great pedigree in scripture. He studied under like the greatest like pharisaical teacher of the day. Uh, his knowledge probably certainly helped him in maybe sharing the gospel but it wasn't those skill sets. It wasn't because he was a Roman citizen. It wasn't because he had all of these different advantages that God chose to use him for ministry. It says that he was counted faithful. And I want you to understand this. And this is something that applies to each and every one of us in this room. Is that it doesn't take a special skill set. It doesn't take uh, some kind of special talent in order to be faithful. Does that make sense? God is looking for faithful vessels. He's looking for loyalty from his people. And that's who he wants to use. Not just those that are talented. Not just those that are naturally gifted. He's looking for people that will be faithful in order to use them to bring about his glory. To bring about his plans, his purposes. And I don't want you to fall into the lie that you have nothing to bring to the Lord's service. You might say, you know what, I can't sing, so I, I can't play an instrument, I can't talk, I can't preach, you know, I'm not very smart, I don't have enough time, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. I would challenge you to be faithful with what you have. Be faithful in the little that God has entrusted to you. Every single one of you right now has breath in your lungs, health in your body. To some degree, you are capable of doing something for the Lord. Sure, maybe you're not going to raise millions of dollars and build orphanages overnight. Maybe you're not going to, to, to preach gospel crusades across the world or, or do something that is super flashy, but he has entrusted you with something simple. Uh, or with something, I don't want to dumb the word. He has entrusted you with what you might consider little. Every one of you in here probably has a smartphone, which means you probably have a Bible. Every one of you has some amount of time allotted in the day that you can spend with him. My challenge to you is to be faithful, to be consistent, to be loyal in the little that you do have, right? That's what Jesus would say when he's uh, talking about the parable of the steward, right? In Luke 16, 10, he says, who, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is, and is unrighteous also in much. And so my challenge, my encouragement to you, friends, is be faithful with what God has entrusted you with. Be good stewards of the time that you've been allotted, the health that you've been given, the access to the word of God that you have, because God is primarily looking for faithful people, not talented people. I'd much rather have somebody help serve in the context of our church that is just going to be consistent and show up than the sporadic kind of attendance of someone that is super talented. Does that make sense? I believe God can do more with a faithful congregation for the long haul than he can with a talented per person for a moment. But that's not our culture, right? We build entire ministries and followings around people that are super flashy, super charismatic, super talented. And, right, and we get shocked when they fall. We get shocked when their, their whole system begins to collapse and crumble. And we wonder why uh, nobody's effective in doing what God's actually called us to do is because we don't value faithfulness like Jesus does.
The second thing that I want to highlight out of this is that Christ came to save sinners. I realize, man, we're in church. We know this. We're Christians. We've heard you say this before. This is kind of 101. That's okay. We can't forget. We can't graduate past this. I love here is that uh, Paul, Paul reflects that the grace of God was more than abundant. Doesn't even just say that the grace of God was there. He doesn't just say that it was abundant. He says it was more than abundant. <laughs> that there's love and faith to be found in Jesus Christ. But verse 15, he, he goes out of his way to say that this is a true statement. This is a trustworthy statement. This isn't just something that somebody else said about me. This is what I'm saying, and it's true, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. The New King James says chief, and I, I labeled this message, this kind of introduction to the life of Paul, the apostle is Paul the apostle, chief of sinners. Right? Because he shares this language. He's, he's writing this towards the end of his life. And he recognizes the gravity of his sin. He's saying, I was chief of them all. I was foremost of them all. I think it's helpful to remind us that he didn't come to save the righteous. Paul thought he was righteous. Paul thought he was doing good. But if you're messed up, if you have a colored past, if there's something that you're ashamed of, friends, I want to let you know you're in good company here. That each and every person in the family of God has been saved from something. I think of what Jesus shared in Mark chapter 2. This was observed of him. Uh, beginning in 15, it says, And it happened that he was reaching, or that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. And when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I want to I reiterate that fact, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And even the most righteous, holy person that I can think of in scriptures, like if there was an example of a guy that I want to be like, I want to be like Paul. Outside of Jesus Christ, man, I think he did a pretty good job. And uh, I want to I I be like him. I want to imitate him. I want to follow him. And we see here that it says that he was the foremost of sinners. And that is where we see the power of the gospel demonstrated. The next thing I want to highlight here, and this is where it gets important. I want you to take note because I think this is where probably the majority of us in this room fall. For those of you that don't know my story, uh, when I was 15 years old, I was uh, actively following Satan when I say that, I was not just kind of like, oh yeah, I was just lost and not an apathetic to the things of God. I identified as a Satanist. I was actively involved in the occult. I was doing all kinds of things that uh, were not becoming of a young man that would want to go into ministry someday. Um, I, didn't, I was opposed to Jesus. I was opposed to Christianity. I even remember sitting down with a guy named J.J. DiMatteo and we plotted out how we were going to murder an Assembly of God pastor in our community. Like that, was, that was what we were doing. That's who we were and we hated the church. We hated Christianity. And so I can resonate with Paul here. Is I didn't kill anybody, just for the record. If anybody's looking for sound bites in case I ever run for political office, let's not take that out of context. Um, there is no way with the amount of things that I've said in sermons that I could ever run for any kind of political office. Just, 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 just for, for real. It'd take a miracle. Um, anyway, but uh, all that being said, I, I can identify with Paul somewhat. I had a radical, dramatic encounter with the Lord that completely upheaved my life and, and really launched me on a different trajectory. But I, I, I reckon to think that most of you probably weren't, um, you know, like making sacrifices to Satan 
or drinking goat's blood or involved in maybe the occult. Some of you probably, some of you were. We could swap stories. That's, that's okay. Uh, the big thing is where we are today, not where we used to be. Um, but I want, I want to be clear for those of you that maybe weren't doing this. Just because you weren't murdering people or selling crack to kindergartners or insert like this terrible thing that you could have been doing, right? I, I, think, I think some of us kind of have this misconception sometimes that, man, to be cool, to have a good testimony, you had to do something that was really bad. Uh, that doesn't mean that God did not save you from something, right? Just because... Just because you uh, maybe don't have this crazy story, maybe you grew up kind of a quiet life, did mostly the right thing, God still saved you from sin. And that's still a big deal. I had this youth student one time who was constantly going off the rails and talking to him, like wondering, like, what is going on with this young man? And it really came down to this place where he's like, well, my dad has this really cool testimony where, like, I mean, he was always doing drugs and going to parties and stuff, and, like, Jesus radically saved him, and, man, I just don't have anything like that. I grew up in a good Christian home, and now he's off on drugs somewhere, unfortunately. Uh, But there was this mentality that in order for it to be real, for his testimony to be impactful, that it had to be colorful, if you will, with all of this nonsense and all of this junk. And I just want to, I, I want to give hope to you this morning. If that's not your story, if you've never done drugs in your life, Shelby, right? You, we have so much to talk about if you answer that question differently. Because I, I feel like I know you. Um, you know, uh, your story looks a lot different than Darwin's, right? But it doesn't make it any less impactful that Jesus saved you from going to hell. The ultimate goal, the ultimate result is the same. But the main thing that I want to emphasize this morning is that if your, if your past is colorful, if the things that you have gone through are maybe a, a little more R-rated than the rest of ours, that's okay because God can and he wants to redeem that here and now because he wants to write a story that redeems your past. Romans 3.23 tells us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We were all dead in sin. Our destination was all the same. And the miracle of salvation ought to be equally heralded amongst each and every one of us. In a high regard. Okay, friends? You guys understand where I'm coming from this, right? You might not, you might not think that I really... You might not really relate to Paul, right? You might not be able to say, Oh, I was killing people. I was hating Jesus before my conversion. The reality is most people that I encounter are neutral or apathetic to the gospel, apathetic to the person of Jesus. But for God to save you out of apathy is a tremendous testimony. In fact, when I'm witnessing to people, I'd much rather witness to somebody that is hostile towards Jesus than just doesn't think he's that big of a deal. I've had far more traction of having conversations with people that are at least convicted about what they believe and maybe Jesus not being real or Jesus might not be worth following because at least there's some conviction about them. The conversations that I've had that have gone nowhere are the people that just, it's not a big deal to me. And so I'm not saying that, but, but if God saved you out of that, if God saved you out of the place where Jesus just was never really important or God was never really a big deal, That is a profound testimony that we need to hear more of. I think of Timothy, right? Timothy has this story. He got saved at a young age. We're going to eventually get into the story of Timothy after we go through Paul. I'm really excited to get there. But, uh, you know, uh, he was one of the converts of Paul, we believe, uh, his family. And we see him kind of growing uh, from a younger age in the Lord, being launched into ministry. And uh, there's some things there. But, you know, this is a young man that at least for the majority of his life, uh, we understand, uh, had a a godly upbringing, you know, had instruction there, which I I think is interesting. And we see him being profoundly used by God. And so I don't want you to think that in order for you to be used of the Lord, that you have to have this really dramatic testimony. You have to be like me and you're all going to go buy goats this afternoon and make sure that you have something spicy to enter into your testimony. Does that make sense? You guys, you guys are tracking with me, right? Don't do that. I'm always worried that maybe I say something wrong and I say, do do that. Don't do that. Um, but I, I just find so much encouragement from Paul here. 
in that uh, while he was at his worst, actively opposing the way of Jesus, um, we see Romans 5, 8, fully fleshed out, that God demonstrates his own love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We see this heartbeat of the Father. We see Jesus intervening. We see an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus that completely changes everything. And no longer is Paul the one that is actively trying to destroy and derail the works of the Lord, but God flips the script and says, you know what, I'm going to use this very instrument that was meant as a tool of destruction for my kingdom, and I'm going to flip it on its hinges, and I'm going to use Paul to advance my kingdom and destroy the kingdom of darkness. And so I don't know what you've gone through. I don't know your particular story, but I do know this, that God wants to use you. I believe God is in the business of redeeming the past. I believe God is in the business of saving souls. And I, I think about this when I'm looking at Paul. It was one encounter with the authentic Jesus that changed everything. You know, he had a lot of secondhand information coming about this guy that was feeding his thought process. You know, he had heard the stories. He had heard the rumors. He had, uh, he, he had been, uh, he was acquainted with who Jesus of Nazareth was claiming to be. But it wasn't until he had an authentic encounter with him that things changed. And my prayer is that there would be many more encounters like what we see happen in Paul, which we're going to talk about next week. I'm really excited to talk about it. We're going to really look at what grace actually is. It's going to be really cool. Uh, Paul talks a lot about that. He has this profound encounter. But he does meet the Lord Jesus. And it changes everything. And I just want to give you hope and encouragement today. And I don't know if there's anybody here that is not following Jesus. But I want you to hear my words very clearly. That there is opportunity to meet the real Jesus today. Not just what religion says he is. Not just what other people have told you about like Paul had understood, like Paul had known. I believe he wants to make himself known to you today. Even those of you that maybe, maybe have been in church for a long time, my prayer is that there would be fresh revelation of who Jesus actually is. Because friends, he's worth following. I'm going to invite us, friends, if you would, I don't, I don't always do uh, this this way, but I, I feel like I'm, I'm impressed too by the Holy Spirit to do it this morning. I'm going to invite us to bow our heads and close our eyes. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.